one thing I, I've understood is that it doesn't, you don't need hours and hours and hours to write a novel. You know, you really just need a concentrated time every day that you're completely committed to. So I am very much about slow and steady wins your own race. Cause I, you know, I don't believe we're in any kind of race, but um, whatever goal you have, whether it's 15 minutes a day, if you wrote and were completely focused on 15 minutes of writing a day and you did that for a year, you, it would add up to a lot. So I try not to panic anymore if I feel like I don't have a ton of time to write. And sometimes it just works better to have an hour um, when I'm doing a, a number of different things. So I try to just make sure when I'm on a deadline to write every day, even if it's just 15 minutes. Um, but then I don't, you know, it's not like I write every day, 365 days a year, you know, when I, if I'm not on such a pressing deadline, I sometimes let the world take over with other things and visiting schools and teaching and parenting and all of that and, and back off for a few weeks and that's okay. Welcome back to Chalk and Ink, the podcast for teachers who write and writers who teach. I'm your host, Kate Narita, author of 100 Bugs Accounting Book and fourth grade teacher. Before I get into today's amazing interview with author and teacher Vera Hiranandani, I want to give a shout out to all the Chalk and Ink guests who received ALA awards. Let's start with Vera. Her book, How to Find What You're Not Looking For, won the Sydney Taylor Book Award and the Jane Addams Peace Award. Congratulations. Congratulations also to Alicia D. Williams. Her picture book, Shirley Chisholm Dared, The Story of the First Black Woman in Congress, won the Jane Addams Peace Award for Younger Children. I also want to congratulate Carol Boston Weatherford. Her book, Unspeakable, illustrated by Floyd Cooper, won a Caldecott Honor, a Seaburn Honor, a Jane Addams Peace Award Honor, and the Coretta Scott King Book Author Award and the Coretta Scott King Illustrator Award. Finally, I want to shower congratulations on Melissa Stewart and Sarah Brannon, the creator of the Chalk and Ink logo, for winning a Siebert honor for their book, Summertime Sleepers. Congratulations, everyone. Thank you all for gifting us such wonderful books. More congratulations are on the way for our giveaway winner, Nicholas Emanuel. He won a copy of Patterns of Power by Jeff Anderson and Whitney LaRocca. And thanks again to Stenhouse Publishers for their generosity. If you missed out on the chance to enter the Patterns of Power giveaway, be sure to enter the giveaway for one of Vera Hiranandani's amazing books. Listen to the end of the episode to find out how to enter. In this episode, we talk about the power of 15 minutes, the importance of respecting one another during the critique process, and how stories help us explore possible ways we can change. Let's get started. Welcome, Vera. I am so excited to have you here today on Chalk and Ink. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. I was hoping you could start off by telling us who you are as a writer and who you are as an educator. Sure. Um, so who I am as a writer is I write mostly middle grade fiction. Um, so my first book was called The Whole Story of Half a Girl. Um, and then I wrote a chapter book series called Phoebe G. Green. And then, oh, you've got them all. <laughs> Great. Um, excellent. And um, and then I wrote The Night Diary, which was one a new very honor. So that was very unexpected and incredibly exciting. And then my most recent book is called How to Find What You're Not Looking For. Um, so so that is my kind of my writing world. 
Um, and I, as far as writing, I also got my MFA in fiction writing at Sarah Lawrence College. So young in my, in my early twenties. So I've been writing since then. And my writing has kind of changed and evolved into different things over the years. But when I started writing for young people, I really felt like I found my voice and kind of found my purpose as a writer. And so I haven't looked back since. Um, And as far as teaching, I have been teaching mostly creative writing. That's my teaching background. So right now I teach at Sarah Lawrence College's Writing Institute, which is a non-credit program um, offering a number of different kinds of writing classes. And I I teach fiction for um, children and young adults, writing fiction for children and young adults. And I also teach a plotting workshop. And um, I do that every semester. Um, and I've taught in different places. I've taught in a number of different workshops over many, many years, but that's what I'm doing now. For a brief period of, of my life, I was a Montessori preschool teacher for two years, and I'm certified as a Montessori, Montessori teacher. So, so that's, that's, that's me. <laughs> wow. I did Montessori for one year. I taught oh, for really? one year. Yeah, it was, it was really fascinating. So, yeah. Yeah. My son started at a Montessori school and I was kind of in between things in my life. And I just became fascinated with it and kind of went in this direction, but then I started publishing more and I, I moved in a different direction. So. So when you're teaching today, these, these courses, are you in person or is it virtual? Well, I was in person. um, And then we switched over to virtual, you know, March, 2020. And okay. I've been teaching only virtual since. Okay. Um, which is definitely something that I've had to get used to. And of course, it has positives and negatives. The biggest positive is a lot of my students now are from all over, you know, right. all over the country. It used to be local to Sarah Lawrence. So um, so that's nice. But I do miss teaching in person. I sit, I miss sitting around a work, you know, a table and really having all of those kind of in-person cues happening. Um, that I haven't experienced in a while. So yeah, those in-person cues are really important. Yeah. 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 So, um, but you know, the other thing is I'm not teaching in a mask. A lot of people who are teaching in person are teaching in a mask and the students are masked. And then that misses a lot of cues. Like my, my kids are going through that. So, yeah. That's also true. We recently talked about that. We had a, a staff development, you know, meeting and, we were talking about that. And that was actually something that one of the teachers said, she said she actually preferred what we were doing last year. What So last year from September through April, we were hybrid. So we mm-hmm. would spend two days in person with half the class, one day virtual with everybody, and then two days in person with the other half of the class. And she said she actually really missed that virtual day because we could see each other's faces unmasked. Whereas mm-hmm. now we're back full-time in person always masked. And so you don't ever see anyone's face unless we're outside of recess. Um, so yeah, it is, there are definitely challenges both ways. Yes, absolutely. And I haven't, you know, I teach a workshop once a week and I, it's an entirely different experience than having to be in the classroom every day, all day long. So like, just major props oh. <laughs> for, for anybody doing that right now. I can't, I can't imagine. So the energy it must take it, it incredible. Yeah. 
It does take a lot of energy. And, yeah. and, and, you know, and also I just want to say thank you for being supportive. There's definitely a lot of uh, negative energy out there right now toward teachers. So it's really nice to have the uh, positive support. And I can't believe I'm getting teary here, but oh, <laughs> well, oh I wish it. I could just give you a hug. <laughs> even though I don't really know you just because I am so grateful. I, I know enough about teaching to imagine what that can be like. And it's extraordinary. Well, it's thanks. extraordinary. So yeah, that's I mean, yeah, thank you. I'm really grateful actually to be back full time, even masked. And I feel, um, I think sometimes the students that are put in my classroom are students that, you know, the administrative and the third grade team think that those students need structure. And the other day, the guidance counselor walked into my classroom during indoor recess and she's like, I cannot believe how well, you know, this class is getting along. We didn't think it was going to be like this. Mm-hmm. And I just said, I think that, you know, these kids in here, they, they need structure and I provide that. And we're just, we're just doing really well. And so I think that, you know, the different situations work for different people for different reasons. And that for people who need structure, you know, knowing where you're going five days a week is, is really helpful. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think of my son, who's a high schooler, my daughter's in college and they had a really almost normal semester, um, you know, with precautions and masks and classes, but, you know, the rules started to lift as the virus levels went lower and like, you know, she was able to socialize in this kind of um, closed community in a sense in the, on the campus. But my son is a high schooler um, in a uh, school that's a special education school. So the entire school is for kids with language based learning disabilities. And it's amazing what they've been able to do. And it's a small school. So they've been in person like the entire time. Um, And I am really grateful for the structure that they all have and, and just being able to kind of plan out their, their days and their weeks in so much unknown, you know, and so it's been incredible. So, I mean, that kind of leads into how to find what you're not looking for because Ariel has dysgraphia and um, you'd mentioned in another interview that I read that your son has dysgraphia. And also you said, and I don't know if it was the same interview or a different interview, but that for you, when you learned how to type, it really changed your relationship with writing. And I was wondering if you wanted to talk about that at all. Sure. Um, you know, I don't get too much into my son's experience other than just letting no. me people know where that that's coming from and, and yeah. kind of in a lived experience um, as a parent, but supporting him. But um, and typing for him has been an incredible game changer. But, you know, I grew up in the 80s. So whatever issues I had in school um you know, it was the 80s. And so a lot of things maybe weren't, um, you know, I just felt like I probably had attention issues. And I I wore a, um, you know, I just had a thing on my pencil. I, I don't know what the yep. sort of the name the for it is. Yeah, the grip, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. something about my handwriting grip was off. And handwriting was always a little uncomfortable for me. I mean, I could make it happen. Um, but I remember learning to type in high school on an electric typewriter. And for me, it was also a game changer. It just helped me 
um, have my ideas flow. I became a really fast typist and I never stopped. And so there are a lot of writers that really want that kind of hand to paper feeling. Um, for me, I started working on a word processor in college and then eventually these, you know, computers and these big clunky laptops. And now I have my Mac Air, which isn't working that well <laughs> at the moment, but um, it's because of our technical difficulties, but it, I, I don't handwrite anything anymore. And it's actually really helped me. So whatever that means, I'll never really know. Um, other than that's just what works for me as a writer. And, um, and so I just think that I think we have to just as as educators be just a little more open minded because I, I agree, you know, handwriting can teach a lot of skills and is really important. But there are some kids, especially in this day and age, where, you know, I just my son now can type really fast and it's really helping him and he'll never look back. He'll be completely a keyboard kid and that's okay. Like he's in the right age for that. So um, in the right era of the world technology wise. Yeah. So, I mean, I think yeah. once <laughs> it's funny because once you're out of school for a lot of careers, you don't, you don't need to do any handwriting at all. Right. Um, so it's interesting. It's an interesting point. And I think your point about being open-minded and trying to find what works for each child is, you know, really important because as you said, some kids do really need that, you know, hand to paper connection and other students, yeah. it's just frustrating and it's, it's a waste of time and energy. So why right. force it, you know? Yeah. yeah. So he works completely on the computer now and that's, that's good. But, um, but yeah, so. But I mean, so, in your book, that's what happens yeah. to your character is that she right. has a caring teacher who, you know, brings in the typewriter. And I just thought, you know, I think that's, I just love that part of the book that the teacher worked so hard to help her. Yeah, that, that was sort of, you know, it was the book takes place in the late sixties. Ariel is 11 years old and she has found handwriting frustrating for her for a really long time, but it's in the late sixties and people don't exactly have the knowledge or the, the labels of, of sort of what's going on. So she's sort of pegged as somebody who's, just kind of has messy handwriting and isn't um, trying hard enough. Even her own mother doesn't fully understand what's, you know, going on for her and she wants the best for her, but she just really doesn't have that understanding. And, and so the fantasy of kind of the teacher um, really willing to look outside the box and kind of this teacher is reading, you know, very new information on dysgraphia. I, I did research where I found that it was in a, you know, the, we had that language then, um, but it wasn't kind of in ma mainstream special ed knowledge, but it was, it was written about. So if you were really um, staying up on all the new developments in special education, you might come across it. So I kind of created this teacher that, that did. And also she's just sort of using her instincts and sort of going out on a limb. Um, and so, you know, I think, Growing up, I had many wonderful teachers and then some teachers that I felt misunderstood. Um, I was always the kind of kid who was really creative and could focus really well on the things I was interested in, not so much on the things I, I wasn't. And I did gravitate towards creative things that really engaged me. Um, and when I was understood and seen by a teacher, it was so game changing for me and also so frustrating when when I wasn't. So, you know, and everybody has both stories, I think. 
Um, yeah, I think that's true. I mean, as a teacher, I try to do things to make each student seen. I feel like that is, you know, that is the heart of my job. You know, I don't know. I th- I feel like some days I'm definitely better at it, you know, than other days. But I think that is what makes the difference for someone in their educational experience. Do they feel seen or do they not feel seen? Do they feel yeah. heard or do they not feel heard? You know, right. So. And we're all human beings. So it's not, a, you know, she's not perfect either. The, the teacher, um, Ariel's teacher, you know, she makes some mistakes along the way and doesn't always see things that she needs to see with Ariel's journey. And, you know, specifically some of the things that happen in the book with the, the bully that, that Ariel has to face who's saying anti-Semitic things to her, you know, a lot of times people want to kind of not necessarily take on such kind of complicated, heavy topics. And it's easier to be like, I'm sure it's something else, you know, it's not really what you think it is. Um, And so I was trying to create a character, even though she's really young, there are just all these things in her, in her world that she's just like, wait, you know, I don't know if this is real or this is truthful or this is right. Or maybe I have a different opinion. Is it okay for me to think this other way? Um, and she kind of gains confidence and strength throughout the the novel to be able to, to stand up for herself. But um, not everybody can do that or feels comfortable doing that. So I think that using stories and seeing possibilities and seeing lanes that you can travel along as a young person maybe I don't feel confident but I'm seeing this this how that what that looks like to kind of grow and try out my voice in different ways or or advocate for myself what does that look like because I'm not even sure um so I I tend to write stories where that evolution happens for the for the main character yeah, definitely. I mean, there's so much I want to talk about and, you know, we can't talk <laughs> forever, but I thought, <laughs> I thought you did such a great job with that. And the whole story of half a girl, you know, there is, I don't want to give away the ending, I guess, for people who haven't read it, but you know, in the end, she asks herself this really difficult question of does this other character like her for herself or does this other character like her because she thinks she can control who she is and make her into someone who's different. And I thought, wow, that is just so genius because isn't that kind of a question we're asking our whole lives? Like, (laughs) you know, like what is this, what is this connection? What is this relationship? Is it a true connection or is it based on some delusion of about somebody who I'm not? Right. Right. And that book, you know, was based on some of the experiences I had growing up in Connecticut in the in the eighties, um, and then sort of wrote a story that could kind of take place anytime. It was a content; it's a contemporary story, not historical. Um, but I was kind of going back to some experiences of switching schools, like Sonia, the main character in that book, does, where she goes to a very small, creative based, um, very accepting school, and she feels like she's part of a family. And then when she changes and goes to the public school, suddenly everything about her background is a really big deal. And people start asking her questions and people start treating her differently in all kinds of ways. Um, And she desperately wants to be accepted and be kind of, you know, in the center of things. And she's trying to figure out where that is. And 
I just remember my own experiences of like, who are the kind of popular kids and how can I be more like them? And what do I have to change about myself to be more like them? And then as I got older, I, I realized, you know, things in the story and the whole story of half a girl are, are happen in sort of more of a compressed um, way. Sure. But for me, it was more of a journey over years of, you know, just accepting and liking myself and, and deciding to change less and less for right. other people. Um, and if you have, a, if my background or the way I am is not your thing, or you're just so confused by it or what it, whatever it is, um, then, then I'm going to move along. <laughs> and just be me. Um, but of course it takes so many years and, and we're all doing that in so many different ways, you know, depending on however we feel. I think everybody has an experience, even the popular kids of what it feels like to, to be different or feel like an outsider. Um, and so often, you know, it's just different, different ways that people cope with that and manage those feelings. Yeah, I thought that was really brilliant. I was reading in the in another interview with you where you talked about how, you know, in the whole story of half a girl, you know, the main character is she's half half Indian and half Jewish. And so you talked right. about that, how she didn't really felt like she quite fit in. But as you just said, that's a human experience, you know, whether or not it, it's, you know, a racial thing or a interfaith thing as you just mentioned, people feel that way, right? Why do we, how are we bridging those various parts of ourselves together? And I just thought you did just such an outstanding job with that in this book. So thank you very much. I can't wait to, to get into my students' hands. (laughs) Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. So I know I'm totally going off script here, but I just, I have to ask something. I've been really fascinated by this book, how to find what you're not looking for. So when you did the night diary, it was all, you know, letters to the main character's mother in her her journal. And in this, you know, you, you do the second person and then on around page 65, she starts to write poems. So Mm -hmm. I actually, I went through the whole book and I wrote down how many poems you have in the book, which if I kind of write is 20. And I looked at how they were interspersed in, you know, throughout the book. And it, it varies from like 10 to 20 pages where the poems come in. And I was wondering if you could talk about that. I'm just very fascinated by that process. How did you decide where to include a poem, when to include a poem, why to include a poem? What was that process like? Yeah, well, it, it is interesting to have that, you know, your experience sort of looking at it closely, like I didn't even know there were 20 poems, you know, I, 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 <laughs> so you may notice things that I just sort of did kind of in an instinctual way and, and maybe, you know, wasn't always, ex- always aware of what I was doing. But um, I think what happened was I came, you know, I had this idea that she would learn how to express herself in a different way. And I did read um, some research about, kids who have dysgraphia, um, writing in these kind of short pieces can be really helpful. And, and that specifically poetry can be helpful. And I think also we have that idea of poetry of just this sort of collection of very abstract ideas and imagery that it's hard to sometimes understand. And, And some poems can be like that or are demanding that of the reader, but other poems don't do that. And I think also we've seen such um, so many more novels in verse that allow kids to kind of um, 
you know, hear complex ideas and more complex stories in these kind of simpler, shorter ways. So I was sort of combining, um, I wanted to kind of do some sort of mashup. And then I, I thought about the character and how she could use poetry. And so it's really about whenever Ariel, you know, just the following the rhythm of the story, whenever Ariel was really stumped by something, that there was just some question that she really needed to process a little more and go a little deeper. That's when I thought, okay, now we're ready for a poem. Um, and I also just tried to do it every sort of 10 to 15 pages. Cause I I'm very much about like setting patterns for the yeah. reader and setting out expectations for the reader. So you are in this rhythm of a story, which is it, to me is like, you know, the way you listen to a song and you know when the chorus is going to come. And and so there are these expectations that you don't want to create a predictable experience, but you also want to um, create some expectations that are kind of comforting and sort of shape the experience for the reader. Um, that's a so fantastic that's answer. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's really both. I mean, it's coming from the character when you put it in, but yet at the same time, you did kind of have a structure in the back of your mind so that, so mm -hmm. that you weren't jarring the reader either when they would come in. Right. And mm -hmm. I definitely moved some poems around, created new ones when I thought there was a moment and I didn't have a poem. Um, so, you know, in revision, I refined that and looked at the pattern I was creating because in a, in early drafts, I don't always know exactly what I'm doing. I'm just kind of feeling my way. And then when I read it, and then, you know, my editor reads it and then we talk, I start to see more clearly what I, at least I'm trying to do and then, and then start to refine it in that way. So this is over many, many, many drafts that I, that I, that I set out those patterns and expectations for the reader. Were those poems in there from the beginning or was that something that happened in a later draft? No, those were there from the very beginning. Um, it just you know, it's just one of those experiences. I do some loose outlining before I write a story, or sometimes I'll write a bit, um, you know, 20, 30 pages to just test out a voice, test out an idea, and just let the inspiration kind of take me on my journey. But inevitably, I hit a wall. And I think, you know, what am I doing? What am I trying to do here? I'm confused. I'm not sure where this story is going. And if I feel really um, committed to it, that's when I start to do some more outlining. So I wrote those 30 pages and the, the first poem was always the first poem. Um, and that was actually the, originally the title, um, the sound of summer. And then at one point it was the sound of last summer. And I, I kept coming to this idea of this summer she has with her sister before everything changes and her sister falls in love with Raj, the Indian college student. And, decides to, you know, basically, I, I'm kind of giving a little spoiler, but elope, um, which changes Ariel's view of the world and her parents view of the world, and the way Ariel sees her parents react to her older sister, who's Jewish wanting to marry somebody who's Indian and Hindu um, in 1967, right after the loving versus Virginia ruling, um, how Ariel's world completely changes in the way that she is suddenly connected to the larger world. She, you know, she's just comes out of her kind of small little um, bubble and realizes that there are a lot of things going on in 1967 
like the Loving versus Virginia Supreme Court ruling, like um, a lot of the stuff in the civil rights era going on in the late 60s, the Vietnam War, um, Martin Luther King, Dr. King is assassinated during the course of the story. So this one change in their family in a certain way makes her aware of the, the, the larger world around her. And she can kind of never unsee it in that way. And I think that a lot of times kids around that age in that kind of middle school age, um, some more, some less, you know, start to realize how they're connected to the larger world and see that the larger world is not as simple as they kind of wanted it to be. Yeah. I think it's masterful. I really, I really do. And I don't think the loving versus Virginia decision is talked about enough. Mm. Um, when we do our civil rights unit, which is during our historical fiction unit, which is in the spring, I, I talk about that, you know, ruling with my students. And I say, well, if, if I would have met Mr. Narita before 19, you know, you know, 67, I wouldn't have been able to marry him in a lot of States, you know, and their, and their jaws drop because I just think that, you know, especially in fourth grade, they're just starting to think about, um, how the outer world affects them and the people in their lives. Right. And I don't think that they, you know, they don't think about how there were these laws that, you know, forbade people to marry someone who, who they would love, you know, they just don't think about that. So. Sure. Sure. And, and my own parents got married in 1968. So that was really the, the, the main point of inspiration of kind of looking at their experience. They got married in Connecticut in 1968. My father is from India and my mom was born here and is Jewish white American. And my father now has been, he came to the U S in his um, mid twenties. And then, so they decided to get married in 1968. And I always think about that. I think about if they wanted to get married in 1967 or earlier before the Loving versus Virginia ruling in another state, because it wasn't illegal in Connecticut, um, in Virginia, for example, what would they have done? You know, would they have left the state? Would they have, I, I don't know. I don't know. And would they have decided not to get married? Um, so I think about all these pioneers, you know, the, the, the Lovings certainly, and then my parents, because they decided to get married, even though they didn't have, my mother in particular didn't have the approval of her parents, my grandparents. Um, and my father's parents weren't living anymore, so he didn't quite have that pressure from his parents. But um, his brothers and sisters, you know, were hoping that, were worried he was making a mistake. Um, and so, you know, and my parents are uh, just celebrated their 53rd wedding anniversary. So it worked out for them. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I just want to ask one more question about this book before we move on. So I, I absolutely love that you have the found poetry on the cover. And mm -hmm. I'm just wondering if, if you could talk about how the cover came to be, because I just think it's masterful. Uh, mm. that's, I just I think it's stunning. Thank you. And I really can't take credit for it. You know, I know, but still <laughs> um, in the design department, we went through a, a, it was a hard book. I feel like to, to figure out the right cover just because there were so many elements and how to kind of include or nod to them on the cover without, you know, overcrowding the cover. So that was, that was complicated and it went through many drafts and a few different illustrators. Um, and I'm really happy with, the way it finally came out because um, I just think it's a really fun cover to look at and really interesting to 
you know, see it first and draw you in and see the poetry. But then as you read it or after you read it, you can look back at the cover and see, oh yeah, there's an album and there, that must be um, Leah and Raj and that, oh, there's a little picture of the newspaper and the lovings. And there, you know, you wouldn't necessarily know that looking at it in the beginning. Um, and then the poetry is really, you know, there isn't actually the blackout poetry in right. the book, um, but it was just uh, an image that expressed some kind of, poetry and also searching for something and finding things and that kind of metaphor I think is why it worked it's brilliant it's absolutely brilliant I (laughs) I'll let them know (laughs) it's just it's fantastic I'm like this is I mean I just can't imagine a better cover for this book it's just so it's so great and I feel like it's also so inviting to the middle grade reader it's colorful it's bright, it's, it's busy, but not too busy. Like you said, where you feel overwhelmed and you don't want to, you know, open it up. So yeah, just, this is really great. So that's great. I love to hear that. (laughs) So I was hoping (laughs) you could talk about how your teaching affects your writing and and how your writing affects your teaching. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's always such, because I, I teach specifically and only fiction writing now. Um, I, you know, I, I'm very much, what I try to do when I'm a teacher is take my own writing life, kind of put that aside. So I don't talk about my own books too much or what's happening in my kind of publishing life. Um, I really want to be there for the students. So it helps me kind of step out of that, um, that space and just be there as another writer, um, trying to, you know, be helpful and a guide as much as I can be from what I've learned through my experiences. Um, But at the same time, I'm always learning from my students. And so it's just this like constant give and take. And right now I I teach adult students. So, um, you know, it's just a bunch of adults in a room trying to think about each other's writing. And we do a lot of workshopping and giving feedback. And I am sort of the person who's kind of guiding it along, but I I really am there to sort of help students be helpful to each other. Um, And then I always see things that I can't in my own writing when I'm kind of like this. So I constantly notice things in other people's writing or hear feedback from a student. I'm like, you know, that could, uh, you know, apply to what I'm writing. So I do love that, that give and take. And it also forces me to stay on my toes. And if I'm going to instruct my students to do this kind of prompt or this kind of exercise or this kind of outlining or thinking about plot in this way, you know, am I doing it for myself? Um, so it, it just makes me accountable in a certain way. And then if I can help somebody see their story, um, where maybe they, you know, felt like they couldn't quite see where it was going, or they're just not fully realizing characters, that's really gratifying because I know how confusing and messy it can feel when you're working on your own manuscript and you really do need other trusted readers to help you see it. Um, so, so I really just love that process. So it is kind of, you know, I, and then I learn things along the way with my own writing that I take to them and then I take what I learn and put it back to my own writing. So it is this <laughs> constant cycle. Yeah. I want to follow up on two things you said there. So you said you like to teach them how to be helpful to each other. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. How do you, how have you found the effective ways to do that in your classroom? 
Well, certainly just a baseline of respect. And I've, I've been really lucky to work with people who are absolutely on board with that. And nobody's looking to tear each other down. But I really say in the beginning, like I, I want us to be honest here and give, but give constructive feedback. And honestly, there is something about a workshop where the, a, a writing workshop where the, the biggest, um, the biggest reason that we're kind of all here is to keep writing. So anything that would shut somebody down, any kind of comment that would shut somebody down and stop somebody from creating and writing, um, to me, is just a really doesn't belong in a writing workshop. And so I would rather err on the side of being more positive and encouraging. At the same time, you know, you we all want to trust each other, and they want to trust each other. So people do say constructive things. People, you know, ask questions about the characters, or I think you could do more here, or you could open this scene up more, or whatever. Um, but it's always kind of phrased. I say I want them to phrase their their feedback in the form of questions and in the form of possibility. You know, and so what can you, um, if you're not understanding something about a character, you can say, you know, I, I'm wondering, you know, more about her relationship with her mother, or um, I'm wondering if we could see more of this scene, or I wonder if you could, you know, expand on that. Um, and then I tell the students, you're going to hear all kinds of things in feedback in a, in a writing workshop. And so usually the things to really pay attention to are the things you're hearing over and over. Um, if more than one student says something and it's just a theme that's being repeated, that's that's definitely worth looking at. At the same time, you know, not everybody's going to be right and you're the one that's in control of your manuscript. Um, so, you know, whatever resonates for you, you have control over that because it is hard to hear negative feedback or um, criticism. And I can see sometimes, you know, shoulders go up, um, you know, just worried that somebody's going to not like what they wrote. And it's really, it's hard. And I've been there. I've been there. Um, so just to really create that support. And I always say the most important thing is just for all of you to keep writing because that's how you get better ultimately. That's true. And then you also mentioned you enjoy helping people find their story. And so it's, you sounds like you have a lot of the, I wonder questions. And I'm wondering if there's something else that you could share that you do that you found to be effective to help people find their stories. Yeah, I think that's really looking at sort of the internal motivations of the characters. So it's first really understanding who those characters are and the main character and ultimately, you know, what the main character wants in both an external kind of plot way and then why they want those things. And that's really that that internal conflict and what I think connects to often the themes of what they're what they're writing. So if you understand, you know, both things, sometimes people are very focused on plot and they're kind of getting that down and the kind of the, what happens in the story and this happens and this happens and this happens. And that can be in a draft, but then maybe they're missing kind of these things are sort of falling out of the sky, just happening. And they're missing, you know, sort of like, well, what does the character want internally? Why are they making the choices they're making? And so they have to just do more character prompts and character exercises to understand that more. Or it can be the opposite way, where it's a lot of kind of internal monologue and, and the writer is really getting down, you know, who this character is, but they aren't really doing much in the story. And just to think more about how they can be more active 
in the story and where the, they want the character to start and end and, and how the character is sort of changing through all of that. Um, so just seeing that, and also just, I can, I can pretty easily, you know, sometimes people are really close to their writing and they just really don't see how this story can kind of be a plot, you know, plot is, it can seem really evasive. Um, but I find that for some reason, when somebody else looks at it, and be like, oh, well, I can see that this character is, seems to want this and wants to go in that direction. I can see them making these choices. Um, so I think it's just discovering both things at once and helping them combine those things. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> so how do you balance everything? You, you teach, you write, you're a parent. What does your daily schedule look like? Well, <laughs> these days, I don't even know. It changes every week, um, as I'm sure you understand, and we all understand. So these are really interesting times. But I think that one thing I, I've understood is that it doesn't, you don't need hours and hours and hours to write a novel. You know, you really just need a concentrated time every day that you're completely committed to. So I am very much about slow and steady wins your own race. Cause I, you know, I don't believe we're in any kind of race, but um, whatever goal you have, whether it's 15 minutes a day, if you wrote and were completely focused on 15 minutes of writing a day and you did that for a year, you, it would add up to a lot. So I try not to panic anymore. If I feel like I don't have a ton of time to write and sometimes it just works better to have an hour. Um, when I'm doing a, a number of different things. So I try to just make sure when I'm on a deadline to write every day, even if it's just 15 minutes. Um, but then I don't, you know, it's not like I write every day, 365 days a year. You know, when I, if I'm not on such a pressing deadline, I sometimes let the world take over with other things and visiting schools and teaching and parenting and all of that and, and back off for a few weeks and that's okay. Um, so I just, try to go with the flow, but kind of like, keep, keep going, just keep going, keep writing is what I always say to myself, because I do see a lot of students get frustrated and overwhelmed by life. And they're trying to do writing in these huge chunks and kind of almost like binge writing in a way. Um, and I think often it would be, it's overwhelming, you yeah. know, it's overwhelming. So I think that's sort of, you're better off writing 15 minutes a day. And most people have 15 minutes a day. It's true, especially for something that supposedly you want to do, right? I mean, if you really want to do it, you find the time yeah. to do it. Right. Have right. you found a certain like time of day that's that's better for you to get that time in or, or, or not? Are you able to do it any time of day whenever it pops up? The mornings are definitely my better time. So, you know, I can't always do that. But when I'm on a, a nice rhythm where I'm, I'm writing sort of between like nine and 12, um, if I can preserve those hours for writing time, and it's not always writing, sometimes it's research, sometimes it's just reading over what I've done, kind of getting into the, into the mode of the story again. Um, but that, that works really well for me. And sometimes I'm on a real roll and sometimes that gets all messed up and then I'll write <laughs> later in the day, but it's not, my head is different. That's the really wide open creative space after the coffee, you know? <laughs> It's true for me. I mean, I'm a really early morning person and I don't know, I'm just in a different space than I am later on in the day. So, yes. Yes. So tell us about a breakthrough moment that you've had in your writing. 
Oh, well, I've had many. Um, and I think it's sort of a breakthrough moment with every novel that I write. Um, because I feel like each, each novel, now that I've been through it multiple times, there's just that first draft doubt that really creeps in. Um, where I have to kind of have that breakthrough and see my story all the way through, through that first draft. And then once I get that draft down, um, whatever breakthrough moment I, I've had, it's hard to kind of pinpoint it. I'm trying to think of, well, the night diary, I can give you an example. Um, I was writing in third person, a male main character in third person. That's how that story started. And I felt like because it's based on some of my father's family, my father and his family and the experiences they had during the partition of India, um, it was sort of staying, I felt too close to the real life story. And there were other elements because of my research that I wanted to pull into that story. And so I needed to kind of change it. And I sort of moved it to a female character and came up with Misha, the main character, and started to think about who she she was. And she kind of came to me as quiet and um, having trouble, you know, speaking to people outside of her family and that she would write in this diary and ex be able to express herself in a way, in the diary, in a way she couldn't in her regular life. And that would be an interesting contrast. Um, and so I started in the diary format and I knew that her mother wasn't living. I, I started with that premise. Um, but then when I, and then I started writing a diary as we do, you know, I kept a diary when I was a kid and I didn't, I wrote to myself, dear diary, or wrote to the diary in a sense. Um, but once I figured out that she was actually writing to her mother in these letters, in this diary, um, that all kind of came together. And so that was my breakthrough moment where the story started to just have something pushing it forward that I was just kind of taking it down at that point, but it took several drafts and you know, a lot of writing to get there. That's really interesting. So, I mean, there were really quite a few breakthroughs there, the breakthrough that it couldn't be the male third person, you know, then the breakthrough that she was going to have a diary and then who she was writing to in the diary. Mm -hmm. So it's, that's mm -hmm. an interesting progression. Thanks for sharing that. Sure, sure. Um, so yeah, it's really just getting to know the story. And then you kind of have your breakthrough each story you create. I think a lot of writers probably have that experience. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And like you said, there's so many breakthroughs, right? I mean, hopefully you have one every day. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I try. <laughs> so, and I mean, that's the same in teaching, right? Is there, is there one that sticks out with you in teaching where you felt like, okay, I made a, a difference or I made a change? Mm. I think that my early teaching days, because I started teaching actually with Gotham Writers Workshop like many, many years ago, and I was teaching fiction writing classes. Um, and I had just graduated. I was like a few years out of graduating from my MFA. I had published one short story, but I was still such a new writer. It's amazing. They let me teach. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and I felt like I had to constantly prove myself. I was you know, I probably, I was like 27, but I probably looked like I was 24. You know, I just probably looked like a kid. And I had a lot of adult students that were older than I was. And so I was working so hard, like to prove to them that I knew about writing and structure and all the craft and all of this stuff. And as I've, I've gotten older and more experienced, it's almost about like a, a, a letting go and a letting, um, like the students sort of, 
kind of show me where I need to go. And so it's become more responsive, I think, my teaching. And that was something that it wasn't sort of an immediate breakthrough, but the more sort of comfortable I felt in my own experience, uh, the more I allowed the, the classroom to kind of go and the group of students to sort of go where it needed to go and to like ease up and let go a little bit. And I think also my Montessori training, you know, it's very much about kind of follow the child and you sort of set out all the things for the, for the young, very young student, because I was a preschool Montessori teacher. And then you see where they're going and what they want to explore. And then you kind of help them on their journey. So that's the model that I try to use now. Well, and you kind of hinted toward that earlier in our discussion when you're talking about how your writing affected your teaching, your teaching affected your writing, and that you would see kind of what your students were doing or what you were asking your students to do. And then you would be like, am I doing that in my own writing, right? And then you go back and then you come back to the classroom. So what you're talking about, that instructional method, I think is somewhat similar of, I'm going to see, you know, see where this goes and then respond to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you know, all the sort of, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a, um, like a, elementary school teacher or, you know, a a teacher where I'm teaching either multiple subjects or I don't have a a degree in education. So I don't always know the names for things, you know, (laughs) of what I'm just kind of following my instincts and and just how can I teach people how to write a story kind of thing. So um, it's always interesting for me to hear what you're calling what I'm talking about. (laughs) If you know what I mean. I'll try not to use any educational jargon. I'm probably no, using it like without it. realizing it. Oh, that's the name for that. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's what it is. So I have to be careful, you know, when I'm with people and I start another teacher and there's someone who's not a teacher is around because the person starts to feel left out. And of course, that's not the intention. But, you know, when you use professional vocabulary and there's someone in the group who's not in the same profession, you're not going to know what you're talking about. So if, yeah. if I start to become incomprehensible, let me know. Oh, no, I like it. I, it's, it's good. You're sort of giving me some kind of vocabulary that I, I need to learn. So, I mean, you've already given us some, you know, a lot of really good tips, you know, write 15 minutes a day if that's what you have. But I'm wondering if you have other advice, you know, for teachers who who want to write, who, who are just maybe possibly starting to write or thinking about writing. Um, that might be helpful for them on their journey? Yeah, I mean, as much as you can to free yourself to get down a a first draft, because you can't really revise, whether it's a short story or a novel, to really get that draft down. And as much as you can to not worry if it's good, because it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. It's really just about getting your story down. And in the effort, of getting the story down, you're just going to learn things. You're going to learn things about craft. You're going to learn things about plot. Um, but you can't really go back and see what you have until you have that first draft. So I really try not to do rewriting and revision when I'm getting that draft down. I really try to just keep it going. And I encourage my students to do that because I've seen it. People are revising the first two chapters of something for years, you know, and they're just trying to get it sort of perfect And I I really think there isn't any perfect. And if I read, you know, how to find what you're not looking for now, I'd probably revise it again. Um, So at a certain point, you know, you just sort of stop and you say, you know, 
uh, Elizabeth Gilbert in her book, Big Magic, talks about this idea of good enough, you know, and you just kind of get it to that point in an agreement with a trusted editor um, and, and you move on. You know, you just get the story as, as close as you can and you move on. I love Big never Magic. Gonna be quite what, yeah, yeah, that's a great book on creativity. I love it. Yeah, you know, and I've never talked about it before on the podcast, but it's, it's one of my absolute favorites. So I'm really mm-hmm. glad you brought it up. Yeah, it's just so freeing. And, and I feel like I was trying to kind of do that anyway. And then she was sort of explaining um, and sort of taking that idea further. And, and so I always recommend it. Yeah, it's a great book. Yeah, it just I think. Well, also the title, Big Magic. And for me, that's what writing is. Those anytime those like breakthrough moments happen or anytime I feel like I'm no longer myself when I'm writing, I'm. Something else has taken over. That's just such an incredible feeling that I haven't experienced. In other places, so yes, yeah, yeah, yes, it's that idea of I forget who the, the writer there was a book called Flow about creativity years and years ago it came out and that idea of flow of just kind of losing yourself in your work and for me when that happens I I feel like that doesn't happen often enough like if I'm not getting that sort of daily moment of flow even if it's just 10 minutes um, I start to not feel myself and I I really need to kind of go and, and connect to that as much as I can to sort of be a whole person I'm very grouchy when I you know do go a few weeks and I haven't had that click um into that place i start to get grouchy <laughs> yeah no it's really <laughs> <laughs> I start to, you don't want to be around me if, uh... <laughs> no it's true it's <laughs> it's true i i you know people have said oh don't you think you're a worse teacher because you write and i'm like oh no i know i'm, I'm a much better teacher but i'm also a much better person like <laughs> it just yeah. I, you know i can't it's part of who i am and so if i'm not doing it right. i'm I'm not nice. And so I don't, it's, it's not a, Oh, I can just stop doing it. And it's going to be okay. It's like, no, I, I have to do it. And that's okay. Right. So <laughs> yeah. If you, if you're somebody who feels that way, then you're not being your full self if you're not right. doing it. And that's, that's not a great place to be. So no, it's not. So what's a writing exercise that you can share with us that people might want to try in their own classrooms? Mm. Well, one of my favorites is, and I didn't come up with this, but I, you know, wherever I came across, I've used it over and over, but it's really the point of view switch. I think it's a really great way to kind of notice what you're doing because you're then giving yourself some distance. So when you're writing a, a short story, you know, sometimes people will use a point of view, but they're not even, they don't even always know why they're using their point of view. And a lot of writers gravitate towards first person point of view. So they use first person. Maybe they're not even conscious if they're doing it in present or past tense. And after they write, it's really interesting to say, okay, now take that chapter or take that story and write it again, or even just a few paragraphs in another point of view. So try it in third person past tense, if you were writing it in first person present. And even if that's not what you ultimately want for the story, it just gives you awareness of why you're using the point of view you're using and just the distance to see who your character is from another angle. So people usually learn a lot about their characters when they switch a point of view and they just become much more intentional about the point of view they they ultimately decide to use. Um, So I think point of view is really important. 
and, you know, trying the second person point of view for um, how to find what you're not looking for was a challenge I had always wanted to try. I had experimented a little bit before, but nothing, no story felt quite right until this one. And then I just went for it. And hopefully I, I thought either people are going to think it's interesting or they're going to think, you know, that I've done something terrible. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, but it was really fun to experiment with. Yeah. I mean, no, for me as a reader at first, I've, I've, I found it like slightly jarring, but then like any other book, like I just, I forgot. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I was like, okay, this is second person. We're going second person. And then it was like, here we go. And I absolutely love the book. So I feel like no matter what the point of view is, if it's done well, the reader will notice it and then forget about it. (laughs) Right. Right. And this, maybe you'd notice it a little more because it's not done as often, right? It's a different point of view. But I I thought the sensation of the second person of sort of bringing the reader in to become the main character in maybe a a different way than they've ever really experienced and sort of to become Ariel, this very specific, you know, girl growing up in 1967, who's 11, who has the issues she has and going through the experiences she's going through to just be sort of forced to be her for a while, um, I thought would be a compelling experience for a young person to have. So, so I don't mind that sort of disorientation in the beginning, as long as it flows, eventually right. flows. Well, no, and it, it, it totally did. It'll be interesting to talk to my students about it. We'll see who, you know, reads it in the spring when we move into our historical fiction unit, because I do wonder if that, if that will help them feel more connected to the character or not, you know, and it yeah. will also depend which one of my students chooses, you know, to read the book because there's such a, you know, wide variety of readers in the classroom. So, so it could end up being a really interesting discussion. So I'm reading your first pages right now. I've read it before, but, um, I don't know if you know this book, your first pages. Oh, okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I've heard of that book. I thought you, I was like, which first pages are you reading? (laughs) But it's it's interesting because it's almost all about point of view, which is why I bring it up, you know, Mm. and he talks about how, and you mentioned this too, how oftentimes people are using a point of view, they think they're using a point of view, but they're not really using that point of view. You know, they think they're using third person, but then it's, you know, it's omniscient, like, you know, far removed, or they think they're using first person, but then they're actually coming at it from a different character's point of view. And so it's really interesting to see all the different samples he has in here of people who are using a certain point of view. They think they're using a certain point of view and they're not. And so I think that's why your book works is because, and and I mentioned this before, but if it stays in a certain point of view, it works no matter what point of view it is. The problem is, is when, when it doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And I think people switch or head hop or go omniscient when they thought they were just in a close third, you know, because it's just, it's a craft thing. And it's, it's about being more used to it and more um, used to the intentional choice of point of view. Uh, And when you're a new writer, you're just kind of hearing voices and sort of trying to get it down into a story. So um, that's just part of what you learn as a writer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So uh, just for fun, what are a few books you think should be in every, you know, elementary or middle school classroom? And I know this is a really hard question for people, but, you know, it's interesting because, you know, a lot of times I hear of books that I haven't heard of and I think I'm pretty yeah. well read. And so I absolutely love this question myself because then I go and I get the titles that other people have mentioned and I make sure I have them in my classroom. So, yeah. so what do you think? 
Well, I think, you know, the, the idea of like should be, I mean, I don't know. I can just tell you uh, some books that I've read recently that really stood out to me um, this past year or two. And uh, two books that I've been mentioning a lot are Prairie Lotus by Linda Sue Park. I really love that book and historical fiction, um, you know, about it's sort of a kind of a remake of, of Little House on the Prairie and sort of Linda Sue Park kind of commenting on some of the things she being a fan of Little House on the Prairie, the questions she had with her own identity. Um, and so it, it really just combines a lot of things. And the, and the girl is, is biracial. So that also, when I read a character who's biracial, you know, I think about all the times when I was growing up where I didn't, I didn't even expect that there would be a character who's biracial. Like I assumed that there wouldn't be. Um, that that was part of my reading experience that I would, I'm just always going to be different in that way from the main character that I'm reading. And I just will take what I can from the ways I identify with this character and then just apply it to me and make those changes myself. Like that was my, the burden was on me in a sense. And so it is amazing to see the changes, um, over time that there are so many more choices for so many different identities. And um, that's really exciting to me. We still have more to go, more work to do, but um, that I really love that. So that book, and then another book I read, um, it's called Letters from Cuba by Ruth Behar. Uh, I also read Lucky Broken Girl, which was her first middle grade book. And then her second was Letters from Cuba. And it's, it's letters um, that, you know, Ruth Behar herself is, um, she identifies as Jewish, um, Cuban American. I think that's how she would identify herself. I, I could be wrong, but, um, so combining, you know, Jewish families in Cuba and kind of coming to America and that sort of that story, that Jewish community that I don't know a lot about, um, and letters from Cuba is a pistolary novel, um, of a girl writing to her sister cause she had to go to Cuba, on her own before the rest of her family comes. And so it's a really, it would be a really interesting pairing to read with the night diary and two very different characters in very different parts of the world. But there is something similar in the rhythm of the letters. Um, that's really interesting. So, so those were two books that I thought were, were fantastic. Well, thanks. I have the Prairie Lotus, a student gifted to it, gifted it the book to me last year, uh, which okay. Yeah. So which it's, you know, it's fantastic, but I, I have not read letters from Cuba, so I'll get that one. (laughs) Now is letters from Cuba. And maybe you said this and I just missed it. Is that a contemporary or is that historical? No, that's historical. Um, and that, I guess, I'm not sure of the year, um, probably in the 1930s. Okay. All right. Yeah. But I also could be wrong about that. Okay. Well, that's great because like I said, I can have that from my historical fiction unit then. So yeah, it's definitely historical fiction. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we're coming towards the end here. What's something that's been bringing you a lot of joy lately and it can be related to reading and writing and teaching, but it doesn't need to be. Um, well, I, you know, I have been, I've been having a hard time reading at night. Um, I don't know. I'm just tired. My head is all over the place. And so I tend to, you know, just watch what a lot of people have been doing over the pandemic, a lot of Netflix. Um, So I can tell you a lot of shows that I'm really into, but I won't. Um, So I do that sometimes in the evening, 
But in the mornings, when I have more time in the mornings, I've been reading more in the mornings. And especially on the weekends, just not having to go anywhere and sort of life being more at home these days. Um, like waking up on a Saturday and reading for an hour, like before I fully get up in the morning has been an, a, a real luxury. And I love reading that way. And then I don't fall asleep after five pages. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, um, I love to sometimes read some of my basic sleeper. I sleep and then I normally get up and write and then I go back to bed. So mm-hmm. on the weekends I can, you know, wake up, right. Go back to bed. And then if I'm mm-hmm. really feeling luxurious, when I wake up that second time, stay in bed and read. And that is, I don't know. It feels like, like I'm being sneaky or something. <laughs> yeah, I know. Which is terrible. We shouldn't feel that way. I mean, unless we're really ignoring some huge responsibilities, we shouldn't, we shouldn't feel that way. Yeah. The dishes can wait or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so grateful that we had this time together. Me too. Thanks for having me. And I, and I really love the combination of talking about both teaching and writing. Yeah. Thanks. Me too. It's bringing, it's just, this podcast has honestly brought me so much joy. I had no idea how much joy that it was going to bring me. And I feel like it's made me a stronger teacher and a stronger writer, which I also did not foresee. So I don't know. (laughs) I don't know why I didn't foresee all these things, but I didn't. And I'm just so grateful to have, have this opportunity in my life. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to Chalk and Ink. It's homework time. Renee Colato Lainez, the Salvadoran award-winning author of many bilingual, multicultural children's books, will be joining us next episode. Although I recommend all of his books, please be sure to read My Shoes and I, Mi Zapatos y Yo, and Waiting for Papa, Esperando a Papa. Both books tell two different immigrant stories. Before I interviewed him, I thought perhaps his own story inspired one book and the student's story inspired the other book. While that reasoning is partially correct, it is not the whole story. If you want to know part of Renee's history before listening to the interview, read Renee's excerpt in That Mad Game, Growing Up in a War Zone, an anthology of essays from around the globe, edited by J.L. Powers. Vera Hiranandani generously donated one of her amazing books to a lucky podcast listener. There are several ways to enter. One, tweet or retweet this episode, and be sure to tag Vera and me. Two, go to www.katerina.com slash podcast and comment on this episode's post. Three, comment about the episode on our Chalk and Ink Facebook page. And four, become a Chalk and Ink Patreon supporter. Patreon supporters are automatically entered into each giveaway. In order to enter the giveaway, please complete one of these actions by midnight on Friday, February 11th. The winner will be announced on Friday, February 18th, on the podcast as well as on Twitter and on our Facebook page. It's February, and that means Valentine's Day is on the way. Feel like spreading some love? Please review this show. Your review will help others discover this podcast. Finally, I want to give a shout out to Sarah Brannon for Chalk and Ink's podcast art and congratulate her again on her Seabrit honor for summertime sleepers. That's all for now. Take care, everyone. Talk soon. Bye.